Welcome to the Legal LGBTQ Plus Podcast. My name is Shane Filcher, they he, she pronouns, and I'm the Executive Director of the LGBT Bar Association and Foundation of Greater New York. This is the January 2024 Law Notes episode of the podcast, and I'm excited to be in conversation with Professor Emeritus Art Leonard, Chief Editor and Writer of Legal's LGBTQ Plus Law Notes. Law Notes is the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments, both in the United States and abroad, affecting LGBTQ plus people. I want to remind our listeners that the views expressed on our podcast are not an appropriate substitute for legal advice and may or may not reflect the views of the Bar Association and or its foundation. Professor Leonard, thank you for joining us. It's great to be with you again, Shane. Well, this month is special, not only because it's our first Law Notes conversation of the new year, but also this is the 200th episode of our Humble program. And I understand that you were also our first ever guest on the show. Yes, uh, we we started doing podcasts just on Law Notes, but then eventually it expanded and we've had many guests come on with particular expertise and it's become, I think, very popular with with our members. We get hundreds of hits, thousands even. We've broken over well over two hundred thousand lifetime downloads. Great, and Great. multiple countries outside the U.S. as well, which is always lovely to see that we've had such an international reach. So we have to be very careful about what we say, but once we get going, we're pretty uninhibited, right? <laughs> Well, let's start right in. I know there was some activity at the Supreme Court that you want to share with us to kick us off today. So I'll yes, let you- and, and, and when I say activity at the Supreme Court, uh, one thing to bear in mind is the Supreme Court term began at the beginning of October. It is now, as we're recording this, almost the end of January, and the court has only issued one decision, and that wasn't a merits decision. <laughs> It was uh, it, it had to do with procedural stuff. So the Supreme Court is holding back right now. And uh, they have several uh, petitions for cert pending before them on LGBTQ related issues, but they keep extending the deadline for briefing. And so uh, two of the pending issues that we're watching very closely, they're not even going to be uh, considering them in conference until February. But we did have a cert denial in December. And while a cert denial is not a ruling on the merits, it is interesting that it involves an issue as to which there is a split of authority in the courts of appeals in the different circuits. And it's unusual for them to pass up a split in authority because it has to be resolved. You know, we we need one interpretation of the constitution for the country. So this has to do with a subject on which many states have legislated now, at least 20, possibly more than 20. It's hard to keep count. And that's passing what have been referred to loosely as bans on providing gender-affirming care to minors. Uh, And by minors, there's almost unanimity. It's age 18 is the age at which you cease to be a, a minor legally. But some states... There might be some variation on that. And this has been going on, litigation about this has been going on for quite some time now, uh, going back 10 years or more. There were decisions by uh, the Ninth Circuit in cases from California. There was a decision by the Third Circuit in a case out of New Jersey. 
and a decision by the 11th Circuit in a case out of Florida. And this is where the clash comes in. Uh, for the longest time, it seemed that the courts were pretty much united on the idea that it doesn't violate the First Amendment free speech rights of people who practice conversion therapy, that is licensed counselors, because these laws are almost invariably restricted to being uh, focused on licensed counselors, people who uh, are specifically licensed by the state based on various educational and practice credentials to provide these services for a fee. And the state regulates this uh, as they do with uh, healthcare practice generally with licensing requirements. And there is an emerging consensus in the profession of, uh, of counseling, whether we're talking about psychiatry or psychologists, pretty much of a consensus, although there is a bunch of very loud dissenters, that conversion therapy is perhaps an outright fraud. And the idea that you can change someone's sexual orientation through uh, psychological or psychiatric counseling. There was a time, and we're, we're talking now back to the middle of the 20th century, there was a time when people tried draconian efforts to reorient people's sexual orientation. There was shock therapy. There were lobotomy, operations on the brain. There was aversion therapy, that is showing people pictures and giving them some kind of medication to induce nausea in connection with pictures of homosexual activity. So all of these things failed to actually result in reorienting people's sexual orientation. They may have affected the way people were behaving to some extent, but they couldn't change the specific, very deeply seated feeling of where your emotional and sexual attractions lie. Uh, that seems not to be able to yield very much to uh, any kind of therapy. And I, I, when I say the word therapy, always put quotation marks around it because therapy is about helping people get better. And the important thing in connection with this issue is the conclusion that conversion therapy, when applied to minors, makes them get worse. That is, their sexual orientation isn't changed as a result of the conversion therapy, but their self-respect and their equanimity and their ability to adjust to the realities of their life is adversely affected. And so uh, the expert testimony that's presented in these cases, of course, clashes because they are the minority of people in these professions who still think that this is a good idea to subject people to, uh, to conversion therapy. But the majority and the people who are speaking the unified view of the professional associations is that it shouldn't be done. And there, there was even one case that went to a trial in New Jersey that resulted in a verdict that conversion therapy was a violation of consumer fraud laws. So, uh, you know, interesting clash of views. This case that was pending before the Supreme Court came out of the state of Washington, which passed a law in 2018 that imposes financial penalties and possible revocation of professional licenses for violations. That is, uh, people of, who are, uh, well, practicing, for work, uh, lack of a better word, practicing conversion therapy on minors. And this was 
challenged by a licensed family counselor by the name of Brian Tinkley, who said, based on his religious beliefs, he was he had a calling to cure youngsters who thought that they were gay or transgender. And the statute focuses on both. Unusually, the, the state of Washington statute defines conversion therapy to include any regime that seeks to change an individual's sexual orientation or gender identity, and specifically includes any effort to change behaviors or gender expressions, or to eliminate or reduce sexual or romantic attractions or feelings towards individuals of the same sex. And Tingley said, you know, I've been doing this in my practice. Now I, I uh, am afraid to do it because I could lose my license. I could be uh, subject to fines. And so he says, my First Amendment right to freedom of speech has been chilled because the brand of conversion therapy that I was practicing was purely speech. It was just talk therapy. I wasn't doing aversion therapy. I wasn't giving people lobotomies or electroshock or anything like that. I was just talking to them. That's all. I was just holding a conversation with my patients, trying to make them feel better. And the district court didn't accept that view. Uh, it said that this is the regulation of conduct. And there is a precedent in the Ninth Circuit. It arises out of California, which has had some of the earliest cases challenging bans on conversion therapy. Pick up versus Brown. Pickup, by the way, since it was held, he couldn't practice conversion therapy in California, he moved to Florida. And he's actually involved in some of the Florida litigation about bans on conversion therapy. The ban seemed to follow him when he moved. But not the state, because in Florida, I mean, you won't get the Florida legislature banning conversion therapy. They're in favor of it. What you get is localities, because there are municipalities, counties in Florida that are much more uh, liberal on LGBT issues. And so uh, the case out of Florida was from Boca Raton, where they passed an ordinance on conversion therapy. And the, uh, the courts, uh, the 11th Circuit struck it down. They accepted the argument that this was a speech case and that uh, the municipality had no compelling justification for banning conversion therapy practice. But uh, in the state of Washington, case, there's Ninth Circuit precedent, Pickup versus Brown, dates all the way back to 2014 from the Ninth Circuit, holding that this is not a First Amendment issue, that uh, speech is incidentally affected by the ban, but we're talking about a purported medical practice, and that is traditionally regulated by the state. And the Ninth Circuit a panel affirmed that. The Alliance Defending Freedom, our old friends ADF, who... Uh, love to challenge uh, gay rights wherever they can and who have also an agenda on uh, overturning Employment Division versus Smith, the Supreme Court case that held that laws that have an incidental effect on free exercise of religion are not subject to strict scrutiny the way direct uh, statutes directly regulating religious belief or practice would be. So ADF has on its agenda, first of all, uh, vindicating the right of people to practice conversion therapy, to discriminate against gay people, to exclude gay people, to uh, ban gender-affirming care. ADF is, you know, they're, they're enlisted in the, in the culture wars on anti-LGBT. 
So they took up Tingley's case and they asked for on-bank review in the Ninth Circuit, which was denied uh, with a dissent. And then they petitioned the Supreme Court. And one of the things that I find sort of uh, amusing to observe is the way ADF fashions their questions presented to the Supreme Court. So they are really in their, they, they pose two questions. And in their first question, they are really channeling Mr. Tingley, who says he's just having conversations with his patients. They said, whether a law that censors conversations between counselors and clients as quote, unprofessional conduct violates the free speech clause. So they're stating a question without even telling you what the case is about. It doesn't mention sexual orientation change efforts or conversion therapy, the different uh, terms used to describe it. It just says, this is a law that censors conversations between counselors and clients. It's just conversations. And the second question was whether a law that primarily burdens religious speech is neutral and generally applicable. And if so, whether the court should overrule Employment Division versus Smith. So they're waving that red flag in front of the Supreme Court. They do this regularly, trying to get them to agree to reconsider Employment Division versus Smith. And there was some thought that they were going to do that in Fulton versus City of Philadelphia case a few terms ago. But they decided the case without deciding whether to overrule Employment Division versus Smith. And the dissenters were very, very unhappy. They said, I remember Justice Gorsuch in a dissent says, we granted the petition here to reconsider Employment Division versus Smith. And now the court has failed to do so. But they couldn't get a majority for it. So they didn't grant cert now, which means they're still not ready to grant cert on the question of uh, overruling Employment Division versus Smith, which is pretty significant because otherwise, if uh, Employment Division versus Smith is overturned, we're not, not sure what would be in its place, but it could open up big religious exemptions to compliance with a whole variety of laws, including anti-discrimination laws, which is a much argued topic. Uh, on the first, there is, of course, a split of circuit authority. So the court usually doesn't explain why they're denying uh, cert petition. They don't even officially announce the vote. But sometimes some of the justices want to send the message that they disagree with the decision to deny. And in this case, we had two dissenting opinions written, one by Justice Thomas and one by Justice Alito, and a statement by Justice Kavanaugh that he would have granted the petition with no explanation. But Thomas goes on a diatribe, and most of it is aimed at uh, the transgender aspect, which I think is a, is a minor aspect of the statute. I don't see that there's a lot of people out there trying to persuade transgender people that they're not transgender. Most of the, uh, of the uh, conversion therapy stuff that we hear about is trying to persuade young people that they're not gay or that they shouldn't be gay, or that they don't have to be gay, and that we're going to show them a better life, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, if you've seen, there have been some movies, there have been some, some books on conversion therapy, and you see some of the methods they use, it's, it's basically to make people doubt who they are, really, and reject who they are. But in any event, in this case, the court decided not to take it on. There was a, a strong argument made 
in opposition to the cert petition by the Attorney General of Washington, that this case was distinguishable from the 11th Circuit case on various grounds. And so there wasn't really a circuit split. But the argument that they also made, which was very important, and that Justice Thomas made, and that Justice Alito also made in his separate dissent, which I'll mention more in a moment, that in a case coming out of California, uh, Justice Thomas had expressed disapproval in his opinion for the court, although it was just dicta in the opinion for the court, but disapproval of Pickup versus Brown, the Ninth Circuit precedent in this case, because in Pickup versus Brown, the California Supreme, uh, rather the Ninth Circuit, had spoken in terms of a different level of review for professional speech, regulation of professional speech, as opposed to just political speech or ordinary everyday speech, and said that because of the traditional practice of state regulation of healthcare, the fact that it has an incidental effect on the speech of the healthcare practitioners shouldn't uh, bother us because we're really we're regulating professional speech as a regulation of the practice of medicine. And Thomas had, uh, had stated uh, disapproval specifically of, of that reasoning in Pickup versus Brown. He said there's no difference between professional speech and other speech. It's all subject to the same First Amendment. So uh, Thomas was upset about that. And Alito, more to the point, said, look, this case presents a question of national importance, he said observing that 20 states in the District of Columbia have adopted laws prohibiting or restricting the practice of conversion therapy. So it's beyond dispute, he said, that these laws restrict, restrict speech. Well, of course they do, whether they do directly or incidentally, they do restrict speech. And all restrictions on speech merit careful scrutiny, although he didn't say strict scrutiny. You know, he's, he's picking his words here. And he lists the conflicting lower court decisions. He notes Pickup versus Brown. He notes Thomas's opinion disapproving it a few years ago. He argues that Tingley's case easily satisfies our established criteria for granting review, which means there's a, there's a puzzle here. There's a puzzle here. Why did a majority, in fact, six members of the court must have voted the other way to not grant? Because if, if any one of them had voted to grant review, it would have been granted because you only need four votes to grant review. You need five votes to reverse a lower court decision or to state a holding of the court, but you only need four votes to grant cert under the court's rules. So I was very surprised when this cert denial came out because I think despite all of their attempts to distinguish the cases, there is a split of authority among the circuit courts over the degree to which the First Amendment would shelter conversion therapy practitioners from any state prohibitions in the form of license restrictions or fines or any of that sort of thing. There's definitely disagreement and disagreement among circuit courts that represent a substantial part of the population. You have the Ninth Circuit on one side, the 11th Circuit on the other. That's a lot of populous states. So at some point, this will have to be resolved. But the Supreme Court is saying, not yet. Now, the two other things worth noting from the Supreme Court, uh, looking back on the month of December, which is the month of legal activity that we're looking back on in this, in this podcast, there was a new cert petition filed in a case called Plaintiffs, or rather Parents versus Montgomery County Board of Education. The Montgomery County Board of Education, in line with recommendations by 
U.S. Department of Education in its enforcement of Title IX have said that when transgender students come to a school counselor or a principal or administrator or teacher asking to use certain pronouns, asking to use a particular restroom or be called by a particular name, et cetera, that their requests should be considered as confidential unless they authorize the school authorities to tell their parents that the parents don't have a right to be informed of this unless the student authorizes it. And these parents object to that. And so they filed suit against the Montgomery County Board of Education in Maryland, which had adopted such a rule. And they struck out in the lower courts on standing. Lower courts said, well, you haven't said that you have transgender children. You know, so how do you have standing here? You, you haven't suffered any injury. But they have a petition and uh, they claim it violates their parental rights. And uh, there's been an extension of time to respond to the petition, even though it was filed in December, it's not going to be discussed by the court until sometime in February. Then we have three cert petitions that are on file out of the Sixth Circuit, which issued a decision in cases from Kentucky and Tennessee, uh, in which the district courts had issued preliminary injunctions against bans on gender-affirming care going into effect. And the Sixth Circuit reversed and said they should be allowed to go into effect while the cases are pending. There are cert petitions from the, from the trial-level plaintiffs uh, in both of those cases, and a cert petition was filed by the Solicitor General of the United States, also seeking to reverse the Sixth Circuit's position. Uh, and on that, the states involved requested extensions of time to file their responses, and their responses aren't due until uh, the second day of February, which means that uh, the case won't be distributed for discussion by the court until later in February. So sometime in February, we may have word about two possible cert petitions. I think more likely in the case out of the Sixth Circuit, where we have three different cert petitions, including the Solicitor General, asking the court to take on the issue of gender-affirming care. And two questions presented in those cases, uh, whether it violates the equal protection rights of transgender minors to be denied the use of various uh, treatments that are also used for other conditions than gender dysphoria. And so they're, they're the uh, <clears throat> state is distinguishing between people based on whether they're transgender or whether they're not really. And we still don't have a clear signal from the Supreme Court about whether the status of being transgender or having gender dysphoria is uh, a suspect classification for purposes of equal protection analysis, or whether there should be heightened scrutiny. Most lower courts say heightened scrutiny in cases like this. And then there are a due process claim raised by the parents of these children because minors can't sue on their own they're the, the uh, euphonious phrase best friend is used for the parent who's suing on behalf of their child. And the parents say, we've signed on to this. You know, we've accepted that our child is trans, that there's a gender dysphoria diagnosis. We want to be able to get the treatment for them to assist them in their transition that has been recommended by the relevant professional bodies as being the standard of care. 
we want to have access to that. And the state shouldn't come between us and our children and, and say no. The states all claim that this is harmful to the children to uh, be given this treatment and that minors, parents shouldn't be able to make this decision for their minors. The state should be able to make this decision. Once they're adults, it's up to them. Although you've probably seen, there have been news reports that in some states, there are legislators who want to cut out all gender affirming care for everybody. And the governor of Ohio, while vetoing a law on gender affirming care that uh, was overridden by the legislature earlier in January, he, he did issue an executive order saying gender affirming care may not be given in state hospitals. So at least surgery, uh, at least surgery was saying it can't be given in state hospitals. That's where things are at the Supreme Court. In other words, we may have a lot of news for you next month. It's possible because these, uh, they sometimes don't make a decision on cert the first time a case is circulated for discussion. It, it depends how heavy a load they have and how pressing they see it is. And we've seen in some of the uh, election stuff that's going on at the court now that they can move fast when there's a deadline that they're facing. But at this point, if they grant cert on anything, it's not going to be argued till next term because they stop hearing oral arguments in the spring and issue all their opinions by June. And they give substantial time for the parties to write merits briefs and for amicus parties to weigh in. So there's no way that these two cases that I mentioned would be argued this term. That would be extraordinary if, if it was. So that's where we stand with the Supreme Court right now. We're not waiting for a major Supreme Court merits decision at this point, but we're waiting on these cert uh, petitions. Mm, still a lot of uncertainty here, particularly for our LGBTQ plus youth. I think that's really the unifying theme for this episode is we're kind of checking in on some of the the issues and the conversations that we've been tracking for quite some time, next of which being a pair of cases that we've previously reported on, both impacting transgender youth in different aspects of their lives. Can you kind of give us the latest updates on what's happening with the athletes and also those facing a healthcare ban in Idaho? Right. Uh, well, first on the athletes, and we've talked about this case before, so we won't go into quite as much detail as, as we previously had. But this is a case out of Connecticut involving four female cisgender high school track athletes. At least they were high school track athletes at the time they filed the petitions. The uh, first complaint in this case, this case goes way back to the middle of the last decade. <laughs> it's, it's getting to be an old case. Uh, and uh, they claimed that pursuant to the policies of the Connecticut Interscholastic Athletic Conference, CAIC, which is the governing body for interscholastic athletic competition in the state of Connecticut, uh, these four female cisgender high school track athletes claim they were discriminated against because two transgender girls were allowed to compete against them and beat them in various races. This was track events. Uh, during the 2017, 2018, and 2019 track seasons, there were two transgender girls, Andrea Yearwood and Terry Miller, against whom these four uh, plaintiffs competed in track meets. Sometimes the plaintiffs came in ahead of them. Sometimes they came in ahead of the plaintiffs. Uh, the plaintiffs say, well, the times they came in ahead of us, that was wrong because they had a physiological athletic advantage 
having been born male and spent at least a part of their lives before they were diagnosed with gender dysphoria and began uh, transitioning as, me- as, as males. And so they have various physical attributes that give them an unfair advantage. And uh, they say this violates Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972, which forbids discrimination by educational institutions that receive federal financial assistance on the basis of sex. Uh, There is some argument as to whether uh, gender identity discrimination violates Title IX. Most courts have considered have said yes, some have said no, but meanwhile, we have these four women who say we were discriminated against because we are women and we were forced to compete against men or boys. They say that if not for the participation of the, these two transgender uh, girls, they would have placed higher in races and advanced throughout the season, but for their participation of these transgender girls. And they were denied publicly recognized titles the two transgender athletes intervened in the case. They say they had both begun socially and medically transitioning. None of the parties disputed that they were in compliance with the CAIC rules. So the transgender girls did nothing wrong here. They did what they were authorized to do, to compete. And so what these plaintiffs wanted was they wanted an injunction against the CAIC policy going forward. They wanted the records of the transgender competitors to be erased. And their standing in the races that they lost to be increased by one place each. And they wanted damages. They claimed uh, among their injuries, they said opportunities for athletic scholarships are affected by your standing in your high school competition and maybe even future employment would be affected based on your record. Uh, At any rate, the federal district court said, by the time this case came around to a motion to dismiss, the federal district court said, well, well, hold on a minute. You filed this complaint back in February of 2020. What happened in February of 2020? The pandemic happened. What happened to the track and field season that spring semester? It got canceled. So there were no races being run at that point. And uh, some of these plaintiffs, two of these four plaintiffs graduated from high school at the end of that spring semester. So they will never again face these two transgender girls in athletic competition in Connecticut as high school students. So their claims in terms of wanting a, an injunction going forward are moot. And furthermore, the transgender girls graduated. I mean, by the time the court had gotten to this point of, of dealing with the motion to dismiss, the uh, defendants filed the motion to dismiss in August of 2020. And the only people left with the, this case were two of the plaintiffs who had another, another season of competition. But to the best of anyone's knowledge, there weren't any transgender girls competing in Connecticut high school sports that year. So the court said they don't have standing either. And no one has standing going forward to enjoin the future 
uh, application of this. Certainly the plaintiffs don't. They're not going to be affected by this rule anymore. So they don't have standing. And furthermore, in, in terms of their claims for damages, there's this doctrine called the Pennhurst damages. Under Title IX, you can't get damages unless you can show the defendant intentionally discriminated against you, knowing that it was a violation of their obligations under Title IX. And at the time that CAIC adopted this, this rule about who could compete, and ever since, it has been unsettled. It has been unclear, but they were not on any kind of notice that they were taking on potential financial liability if they allowed transgender girls to compete. They're, they're, in fact, to the contrary, uh, the Obama administration and subsequently the Biden administration, that's later than this case, the Obama administration has sent out a Dear Colleagues letter from the Education Department to the school districts saying transgender people have to be treated consistent with their gender identity. And so they could have thought that they would be violating Title IX if they didn't allow the transgender athletes to compete as well. At any rate, the court says there's no remedy that we can give them. And erasing the records, this is all hypothetical that they would have placed in a certain place if they weren't competing with the transgender girls. I mean, every race has its own dynamic, you know, and, and who is competing has something to do with the performance of everybody. So district court says, case is moved, case dismissed. No one has any standing anymore. Uh, went up to a three-judge panel. A three-judge panel affirmed in December of 2022 in a decision written by uh, Circuit Judge Denny Chin. And then petition for on-bank review. And in the petition for on-bank review, with all the judges of the Second Circuit voting, the Court of Appeals was reversed and the district court was reversed and the case was sent back to the district court in Connecticut. I mean, the court agreed as to one thing, everyone in the court agreed as to one thing, uh, even the dissenters, that the plaintiffs had suffered an injury, at least theoretically, that based on their pleadings, they had met the pleading requirement for standing in terms of suffering an injury. But the majority said on the issue of redressability, you ha also have to show that the court would have jurisdiction to issue relief that would redress your injury. And there was a disagreement about that because a majority of the judges said, well, you know, the court could theoretically go back and require them to rewrite the record book as to what happened in those races. That is within the realm of possibility. Uh, so that would be at least a partial remedy for the plaintiffs, that there is an open question, really. It hasn't been fully decided whether the Pennhurst Doctrine bars any damages in this case. So that's an issue also for the district court to consider on remand, even if injunctive relief is not available. Judge Chin dissented basically along the lines of uh, the opinion that he wrote for the three-judge panel. So this case is still alive. And that's significant because this is one of the cases that gets cited a lot by legislative proponents of bans on transgender people competing, specifically transgender women. They don't care about transgender men competing. They say, if you were born as a girl, okay, you want to compete against men, go ahead. <laughs> you know, but uh, they, they see a, uh, some of these statutes even say, you know, defending women's sports and things like that, that they're really concerned about the idea 
because they don't accept the idea that transgender women are not men, are women. And so if you look at the, the legislative debates and things on this, and even the wording of some of these uh, statutes, they say it's your biological sex that counts and your biological sex is based on your chromosomes and what it says on your birth certificate, your original birth certificate, not an amended birth certificate. And once a boy, always a boy is their view. And that there's a reason that uh, Title IX does allow for separate men's and women's sports competition. Right, that's one that you asked about. The other is a decision out of the U.S. District Court in Idaho by senior U.S. District Judge B. Lynn Windmill. Uh, and every time I read Judge Windmill's name, I remember, although I don't remember him specifically, but he was a classmate of mine in law school in a very large class. And so I don't recall actually knowing Judge Windmill, but what Judge Windmill has made a significant contribution to LGBT law because he was one of the first judges in the country to order a state prison system to provide gender affirming care to a transgender inmate. And specifically surgical gender affirming care. I mean, many of them have ordered hormone treatments at this point, but to actually order a prison system to provide surgical alteration uh, was a landmark on the part of Judge Windmill. Uh, also, because a district judge did that in Massachusetts, but was reversed by the First Circuit. But in this case, the Ninth Circuit affirmed Judge Windmill. So it was really historic. So he is well-versed on this issue of gender-affirming care. And Idaho passed a statute called the Vulnerable Child Protection Act which was slated to go into effect on January 1st, 2024, just a little while ago as we're recording this. He issued a preliminary injunction on December 26, preventing it from going into effect. Under the law, which is referred to by its House Bill number HB 71, any licensed healthcare professional who provides gender-affirming care to a minor can be convicted of a felony with a potential prison sentence of up to 10 years. And the practical effect of this law would make such treatment unavailable in the state of Idaho for any minor, regardless of their, uh, what their physician says, what their parents say, what their counselors say, they could not get it in the state of Idaho. So two transgender teenagers and their parents sued the Idaho Attorney General, Royal Labrador, and also the Ada County prosecuting attorney because they reside in Ada County and the prosecuting attorney would be the one to prosecute. They asked the court to declare the law unconstitutional and to order these defendants not to enforce it. They also sued members of the Idaho Code Commission, which is the body that publishes the official code of Idaho statutes because they sought an order that when the statute is published, there'd be a specific statement there that it, its constitutionality is being challenged, that that'd be put right in the, in the state code so that no one could claim they didn't know that there was a possible constitutional problem. Judge Winwill determined the commissioner should be dismissed as defendants, but he rejected all procedural objections to the lawsuit by the attorney general and the prosecutor. He found that these officials are charged with enforcement and therefore they were appropriate defendants. And he said, the plaintiffs clearly had standing. These are teenage 
kids who identified as male at birth, but who identify as female now, they've been diagnosed with gender dysphoria, they're receiving gender affirming treatment. If the law went into effect, they would have to go out of state to continue their treatment. There was no exception, unlike some of the other states. Idaho made no exception for people who were already receiving such care. Uh, some states say, well, we will give you a certain amount of time for your physician to wean you off the hormone treatments so you can detransition gradually. Some states say you can complete, you can continue your treatment without limit. But Idaho said you got to stop cold, which could be quite traumatic, I would think. So they would have to go out of state to continue treatment. And he said that they clearly had standing based on this. There was a, a, an imminent injury here. The court received five amicus briefs from numerous professional healthcare associations and learned societies, all agreeing that the treatments banned by HB 71 were safe and effective and necessary for the health of transgender minors with severe gender dysphoria, which he agreed. One thing they raised, which is frequently raised here, there are certain countries in Europe now who have imposed restrictions on the provision of gender affirming care to minors. But the comeback to that is none of them have banned it. They've all said it's, uh, we see it as sort of experimental, so it has to be under certain supervision and certain uh, qualifications have to be met, et cetera, et cetera. And it turns out that most of the guidelines that the European countries are imposing are similar to the guidelines adopted by the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, WPATH. And those are the guidelines that are generally followed by practitioners of gender affirming care in the United States. So the idea that the, what the European countries are doing is some kind of precedent for, the, for a statutory ban is incorrect. There are certain very quotable quotes in this decision that are worth knowing. Judge Windmill wrote, parents should have the right to make the most fundamental decisions about how to care for their children. As it turns out, case law applying the 14th Amendment tracks with our intuition. Time and again, the cases illustrate that the 14th Amendment's primary role is to protect disfavored minorities and preserve our fundamental rights from legislative overreach. That was true for newly freed slaves following the Civil War. It was true in the 20th century for women, people of color, interracial couples, and individuals seeking access to contraception. And it is no less true for transgender children and their parents in the 21st century. And he also takes on the idea that it's undemocratic for the court to step in and overrule the legislature. He wrote, it is important to briefly address a criticism common to court decisions that apply the 14th Amendment to strike down legislative enactments. And here, I think he's, he's talking about the Dobbs case, actually. Critics say such decisions are anti-democratic and frustrate the will of the people as expressed by their elected legislatures. And they are right. But that is precisely how our constitutional democracy is supposed to work, he wrote. The authors of the 14th Amendment fully understood and intended that the amendment would prevent state legislatures from passing laws that denied equal protection of the laws or invade the fundamental rights of the people. Uh, I assume that they're going to appeal that, but they may not get too far. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, Idaho, uh, I believe, is the Ninth Circuit. So uh, 
I don't know that the Ninth Circuit has has ruled directly on this question yet because most states in the Ninth Circuit wouldn't dare ban gender affirming care for moms. But we'll see what happens. But uh, as I say, I am uh, I am very partial to Jeff Windmill, <laughs> my classmate. And I, I should acknowledge that the ACLU's national office and its Idaho affiliate were pro bono uh, attorneys on this, as was Paul Weiss, a national firm. And there was local counsel, of course, in Idaho. Uh, so this is an, an interim victory, but it may well stand up. Or it may end up being the case, the guesses of the Supreme Court. If they grant the cert petition, in uh, the case out of the Sixth Circuit that I was talking about earlier, then all of these cases that are still pending around the country will be on hold, I'm sure. The judges will put them on hold until the Supreme Court rules. And since if the Supreme Court grants that petition, the case won't be argued till next fall at the earliest. That means these bans, if these preliminary injunctions uh, in other states hold up, because there are preliminary injunctions against gender-affirming care bans in other states outside the Sixth Circuit, they will remain enjoined. So there are still places people can go to get the care, even if they live in within the Sixth Circuit and they have to go out of state to get it now because the preliminary injunction there was overturned by the Sixth Circuit. Could be a very interesting legislative season. There yes. are two interesting cases out of Iowa in this month's edition but I believe we only have time to cover one of them. Could you take us to the Hawkeye State? Well, this is, this is another thing that's sort of sweeping the nation, and that is attempts by state legislators to make sure that elementary school and maybe middle school and maybe even high school students do not have access at school to information about sexual orientation and gender identity. They, they want, don't want that in the curriculum. They don't want books about that in the school library. And... Uh, the case that we're referring to actually is a combination of two cases, uh, one involving the books and the other involving the curriculum. But uh, this is a, uh, an Iowa law that was signed into effect on May 26, 2023, uh, which would require the removal of books and other materials from school libraries if they include descriptions of sex acts and to ban any programs, promotion and instruction relating to gender identity and sexual orientation for students in grades K through six. And the effective date would be January 1st, 2024. Anticipating that, many Iowa school districts have been pulling books off the shelves, hundreds of books off the shelves. And uh, because of the sloppy drafting of this statute, it was easy for the federal district judge in this case to say, oh, this statute is impossibly vague and ambiguous. This is Judge Stephen H. Sloker of the U.S. District Court in Iowa. He said that if you follow the Supreme Court's lead in statutory interpretation now, which is textualism and very, very strict textualism, statutes mean what they say, then what this statute says is that anything about sex must be excluded from the curriculum, not just gay sex, same thing with books, anything. He said, anything that depicts a quote-unquote normal heterosexual relationship may not be taught about because sexual orientation includes heterosexuality and homosexuality. 
he said the ambiguities of the statutory language and its misinterpretation of the actual language of the statute by the people who are defending it who say oh no this is just focused on sexual orientation and gender identity he said vague and inconsistent with the stated purpose of the law it defies the requirements of the 14th amendment's due process clause so easy for the judge here to issue a preliminary injunction he also pointed out that the curricular restrictions only apply through grade six so he said contrary to what some people are saying around the state grade seven through 12 you can teach about these things seven through 12 you could have gay straight student alliances you could have teachers as faculty advisors to them. These are all issues that have been raised. Does this mean you can't have faculty, but you can't put up a gay pride flag in a high school classroom? No, this doesn't apply to that. This just applies to K through six. Uh, of course, that was that was what it originally was in Florida. And then they expanded it to include high school in Florida. So there were lawsuits galore in Florida uh, attacking various aspects of Governor DeSantis' anti-LGBTQ agenda. And who knows what's going to happen with that now that he's dropped out of the presidential race. So that's that's the news from Iowa. Any predictions or concerns that you want to share for the upcoming year? We've seen a barrage of legislative attacks in the last year. We have an election coming up, as you've alluded to. Any, any Anything you want to, any of the tea leaves that you want to read while we're early in the year? We're going to be obsessed with anti-LGBTQ legislative proposals. Uh, I, I was just reading that the statistics are in on last year, well over 500 proposals in legislatures and about 75 of them were enacted. And there are several dozen lawsuits around the country attacking them. And many district judges have issued preliminary injunctions, but not all. And as we've seen, uh, the courts of appeals are divided on many of the issues. The heavy focus is on transgender people who are being made the official scapegoat for the Republican Party in this election. And you can see uh, the, the Biden administration is opposed to what's going on and their cert petition uh, asking the Supreme Court to reverse the Sixth Circuit in the Tennessee and Kentucky cases is evidence of that. It's very rare for them to file a cert petition asking for review of an opinion, opinion where the federal government isn't a party in the case. That's, that's unusual. As to what else might happen, it really turns on, on the cert grants, and it turns heavily on the election. Uh, and it turns as well, as we've seen, especially in, in the courts of appeals, on the degree to which the Biden administration and the Democratic majority in the Senate can continue to fill vacancies on the courts of appeals. Because uh, the Supreme Court has become pickier and pickier and pickier about which cases they're going to review. The, the number of merits decisions they do per term has been declining all through the history of the Roberts Court. They've been very stingy about granting certain petitions. So uh, those courts of appeals are proving to be the last stop for a lot of our litigation. And uh, who is on those courts of appeals makes a big difference. You know, when, when you see all the debate and the, the news about presidential elections, everyone's focused on who's going to be the president. And maybe secondarily, who's going to be the vice president. Or who's going to control Congress, but very little talk about what the impact is on the judiciary. And the judiciary is impacted by who's president, obviously, who gets to appoint, and by who's in the Senate, who gets to block or confirm 
the Biden administration has fallen behind the record of the Trump administration in terms of filling federal judgeships. And Biden has now less than one year to appoint judges if he's not reelected. If he is reelected, he might even get a Supreme Court pick in a, in a second term. It de- depends how long some of the old timers on the court last, because there are a few people at or approaching what would be a normal retirement age in the real world. The Supreme Court has its own real world that's unreal, and people serving into their 70s and 80s uh, on the Supreme Court. So uh, we'll see what happens in terms of openings there. But this upcoming election could be very consequential for the Supreme Court, obviously, seeing who Mr. Trump appointed. Because if he were to be elected for uh, another term, I can see certain senior members of the conservative majority on the Supreme Court retiring so he can put younger people in those places. All of the Democratic appointees on the court uh, were appointed by Presidents Obama and Biden. So uh, they're nowhere near retirement ages. So those three seats, and barring illness or some other problem, those three seats are, are pretty secure. But what happens with the other six is a matter of great concern, given the issues bubbling up to the court and the likelihood that sooner or later they're going to have to decide the gender affirming care issue. Sooner or later, they may have to decide the uh, gender conversion therapy issue and these book banning things. That's they get up there. The drag show, not so likely. I've, I've seen the drag show bans are just falling under the First Amendment. But the, the library stuff, the curriculum stuff, that's uh, still somewhat unsettled terrain to some respects. So uh, what happens over the next year in the lower courts uh, will be very interesting to watch. There'll be no shortage of things to discuss in the new year, um, but I definitely don't want to cut off our discussion today. I want to make sure we leave enough time that if you have something up your sleeve of note that you could share that with us. Well, I always have it of note. This would be a quickie. Idaho has a hate crime statute, and uh, we had a rather unusual case, the burn your flags case out of the state of Iowa. On December 1st, the Iowa Supreme Court issued a decision affirming that a man who left notes on several of his neighbor's doors instructing them to burn their, quote, gay flags was guilty of trespass as a hate crime. And he claimed, no, that's freedom of speech. I was just telling them that I disapprove of those gay pride flags that they're flying on their property. And the answer to that is you were a trespasser. And under... Iowa law, a trespasser who is motivated on the basis of sexual orientation or a bunch of other things comes under the hate crime statute. Trespass to property is one of the specified crimes that's covered by our hate crime statute. And we reject the First Amendment argument entirely. You may have freedom of speech, but the state has the right to protect property owners from intruders posting a notice that is indeed somewhat threatening to them. A very interesting case. Uh, the uh, name of the case is State of Iowa versus Gettys. And it's uh, the Iowa Supreme Court, December 1st. Uh, if you want an interesting view of some of the weird stuff that blows up in our courts, take a look at that one. When you're reading the write-up on law notes for that case, all I can imagine is 
what if there had been one of those ring cameras on the doorstep recording this whole thing? Well, it turns out that uh, he was he was identified pretty quickly because he was going around the neighborhood doing this. And people spotted him. So the police caught up with him and he was prosecuted. He he got off with what I consider to be a slap on the wrist. But uh, still, he's on probation for a while. And he he was sentenced to prison, but it was suspended. He was put on probation instead. Maybe he's learned his lesson. Let's hope so. Well, Professor Leonard, thank you so much for joining us today. You are our first podcast guest. You are our 200th podcast guest. Thank you, as always, to our listeners. We know that you're out there and we appreciate you. Please continue to like, share, and find us on Apple Music, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And in honor of our 200th episode, please consider donating to support production costs. We don't hide any episodes behind a paywall. We don't receive any advertising revenue, and I don't bother you with any commercials throughout our conversation. So please consider perhaps giving up one of your lattes this month to chip in for our costs. You can visit www.lgbtbarny.org and click on the donate button if you choose to support. Thank you, and we'll see you next month.